what's up guys welcome back to the honest youth pastor youtube channel the channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life today we're going to be doing that through yet another sermon review today we're going to be looking at a church i i don't have it pulled up so i can't even tell you i'm sure he'll tell us his name in a moment the point is it's not incredibly important because what we do with these sermon reviews is we're not like look at how good this pastor is or look at how terrible they are we say hey here are the criteria that we should look at sermons at with and then we look at it so each week we look at a variety of different sermons and from a variety of different pastors sometimes you know, again, sent in by you, sometimes not. This particular sermon was sent in by a patron. If you're interested in becoming a patron, link in the description below. Also down there, if you don't want to do that and you just want to skip past it, there's a link for a sermon review guide. That's free. You can check that out and download it as well. And on that review guide, what you're going to see is three questions. The same three questions we ask every single week when we look at sermons. The first one is, do they read the text? The second one is, do they use uh, culture and context to bring out the application that is in that scripture? And thirdly, do they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Seems like a pretty low bar, but sometimes we don't get there. Sometimes we do. Let's hop over to the review screen. Here we are, guys. Let's go ahead and hop into it. Now, there is one thing. We are starting. This is uh, an hour and 17 minute long uh, video. The entire thing will be linked in the description below as well if you want to just watch it without my commentary. We are starting this at 40 minutes, 30 seconds in. Now, I would, I would encourage you to do, if nothing else, is to go to the link in the description below. Go to about 30 minutes or so. There is an incredible testimony that is given before this um, that doesn't really, I mean, it kind of ties into the sermon, but I want to make sure we definitely cover the contents of the sermon itself. But I would encourage you to go watch that testimony. Um, I think you'll be blessed by it, just to be frank with you. So let's go ahead and hop into um, this sermon now. Again, starting at the 40 minute, 27 minute mark um, or 40 minute, 27 second mark and uh, see, uh, well, what do we get? How, how, how are we doing today? The people whom God put in Kevin's life to lead him to faith in Christ. Kevin is the guy that uh, gave the testimony before, just to give you an idea. He is tying this sort of into the sermon. There were people who were intentionally sharing the gospel with him, calling him up on the phone, saying, hey, Kevin, man, I'm praying for you, what you're doing. You're not walking according to the plan of God for your life. You see, it is people whom God uses to lead other people to Christ. That is what we see happening in Acts. One thing that I want to point out too is the the bottom right, or well, it depends on how you're watching this, I suppose. But in the bottom corner, there is somebody that is doing the sign language for the sermon. Um, if you have... Um, any way that you can do something like this. I mean, here's the thing, know your area, right? This is something I appreciate about churches that do this or do like uh, subtitles or language translation for people. If you know you're in an area that is like, you know, that has a lot of people that have, uh, that are hearing impaired, um, then like, obviously, why would you not have, especially if somebody's a member of your church, um, why would you not have this available or try your best to get this available? There's uh, another patron actually, that her church is uh, it, it's a mix of English speaking and I and I I don't know if she said Chinese or Korean speaking but one of the two that it's it's just easier to have a translator in the service every Sunday so that the entire body can understand what's being said and it's translated into their language and it makes it more accessible for them. So that is something I think that's incredibly helpful that churches can do. If you know your area, like if that's a thing that's needed in your area to have that available um, again, just as a, an, an assist to your, your local body, but also as an outreach to those that, that may benefit. So keep going. Chapter nine. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter nine. We're going through the book. <laughs> I know I've interrupted a bazillion times, but as always, uh, we want to go to the scripture that they're going to. So Acts chapter nine is where he is in. Um, so let's go ahead and go there. We always, 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 always want to go to the text, whatever they name it. So we can go there and follow along and make sure what's being said is actually what's in scripture book of Acts together as a faith family, this great historical narrative of the early church and 
We're doing a three-part mini-series walking through the life change of the Apostle Paul, who in Acts chapter 9, his name is Saul. As you're turning there, uh, I do want to clarify something that I said last week. Uh, Last week, I made the statement that Acts chapter 9 is the single greatest moment in the history of the church, and that is not accurate. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest moment in the history of the church. Okay? Your Bible is perfect. Your pastor is not. This is why it's essential that you examine every preacher you listen to through the filter of Scripture. Okay? So let me get it right this time. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ... Acts chapter 9 is one of the greatest moments in the history of the church. It's amazing that through this one man's life... I don't know if anybody's familiar with the reference. I haven't even watched the whole movie, Jerry Maguire, but there's that iconic part in Jerry Maguire where she's like, you had me at hello, Uh, because he's like proclaiming proclaiming his love for her, but he starts off with hello and da-da-da-da, and it's the whole like romantic line of like, you had me at hello. Uh, You had me at verify what I say with the text, bro. (laughs) Like, I'm, I'm already on your side. Like, already, I'm like, oh, that's good. Like, I've still got some walls up, but... That's a wonderful way to start. Yes, always check what your pastor says against the word. And it's a double awesomeness if he encourages you to do that all the time. In ministry, the apostle Paul is a man who through his preaching, through his disciple making, through his church planting, through his letter writing as found in scripture, has led millions of people to faith in Christ. What we saw last week is he, this, as this man, as Saul, had this rage against the church. And then we saw where the power of Jesus was on display to humble the proud. That God humbled this man. This man was brought low. We challenged our church that we are to be a people who are praying for our enemies. We pray that Jesus would meet them, humble them, and save them through the gospel. We saw where Saul was on a journey to arrest Christians, and then Jesus blinded him, humbled him, and brought him to his knees. We then see where God taps the shoulder of a man named Ananias, a man whom God uses to bring this Saul to faith in Christ. And that is where we pick up in Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 10. And the scripture says this. The one thing I think is important there, too, is that Um, What he did there was give us a background context leading up to nine without making it feel like we were getting exposition. Um, There is something to be said about pastors that are, are good communicators. Uh, I'm not even talking about phenomenal communicators, right? There's people that are just like phenomenal at communicating things. And then there's just people that are just good at it, right? They don't make it feel like bogged down. And so he gave us a very short exposition about what has happened up to this point, why it's important, covered the high notes, and then just goes into nine, right? So now we have enough information to cover what we need to know about what's going on. So when we enter into chapter nine here, we're, we, we have a general idea of what's going on in case maybe you haven't read Acts before. Maybe you've missed every service before this, right? At least you have a general idea and it doesn't feel dry and boring. You, you, you feel like I have the information I need to know, and here we go, right? That's good communication. You've given information without making it feel like information. Let's keep going. This. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. God's design for getting the gospel to the nations is through his people. Indeed, the church is the vehicle through which the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth. In Acts 9, God uses Ananias as a minister of the gospel in Saul's life. Through Ananias, Saul is healed of his physical and spiritual blindness. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He is baptized and he is discipled. The question is, how can God use us today just as he used Ananias in Acts 9? What I want to do this... Now, well, he's about to explain what he's going to do, but I want to do it before he does it. So what I want you to see is that obviously <clears throat> this is what is going to be called expo expositional preaching. It's that he read through all of the text. Basically, what he just did there was give us a summary of what he just read. So we kind of have a general idea of what happened. And now he's going to go through point by point, verse by verse, really giving us a breakdown of like, how is this even applicable then? Like, it's great that we read it. It's an amazing story of what, uh, you know, has happened in Paul's life through Ananias. So why does it matter though, right? Some people call this the, like the why or the what for then, right? You have to explain and make this applicable in a way that's understandable, but also anchored in the text. Like there's a lot of things here and this is where, uh, you know, good good speakers and bad speakers are going to kind of divide on path here because there are people that we've reviewed on this channel before that basically do what he just did, which is, you know, give us a little context, read some scripture, sometimes as much as he did. Um, and then they'll give a general overview. And then this here is where the path divides. So then they'll go into telling some story about their own life, or they'll go into some, you know, using the scriptures, some jumping board into a point they want to talk about. Or, as what we're going to see he does here, is keep it anchored in the text and walking us through slowly, this is what happened here, this is how it's still applicable now, and this is how these two things tie together, right? So, that's good in and of itself. What we want to look for here, <clears throat> and I guess I'll just give you... I guess I'll just give you a spoiler alert. What we're, what we're looking for is, does he do that well? Right? It's great that you can do this, but do you do it well? Are you able to keep people's attention and to teach them and edify them through the scriptures while you do that? Because it's one thing, and this is one of the reasons I think people really like people like Mike Todd and Stephen Furtick, is that there is it's one thing to get you like very excited. It's another thing to actually teach you something. And so whenever you're teaching and preaching, and I know people are be like, well, teaching and preaching are different. Well, same basic concept here is that it's not just throwing out a bunch of facts to people and then trying to, through relatable stories, make it stick. It's demonstrating how the Word of God is alive and is alive in their life. So that's what his goal here is. So let's see what he says. This morning is to show you these three keys on how we can see God use our lives to impact our world for Jesus. The first key I want you to see is this, is we must be open to the Lord's word. Be open to the Lord's word. Now, according to Acts twenty-two twelve, this guy Ananias is a leader in Damascus, in the church. Now, this is not obviously the same Ananias we see back in Acts chapter 5, who's married to Sapphira, where the two of them lie to the Holy Spirit, they lie to the church, and they drop dead. This is a different Ananias. But as a leader in the church, that makes him one of Saul's targets. And little did he know what God had in store for him that fateful day in verse 10. But what made him effective was the fact that he was open. He was available to the Lord's use. When Jesus called him, he was ready. Ananias, the Lord said to him in a vision. And what does he say? Verse 10, here I am Lord. It reminds me of Genesis 22, when the Lord calls Abraham and he responds, here I am Lord. It reminds me of Exodus 3, when God appears through a burning bush to Moses and Moses says, here I am. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 3, where four times the Lord calls Samuel and Samuel says, here I am Lord. 
And we see it here in Acts 9, where the Lord appears to Ananias and calls upon him, and he says, here I am. This is a pattern of people who are available. They are open to the Lord's word. You want to be used by God. In this brief, temporary life that you and I have that is fleeting, it's like a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow, but this brief moment in history, if we want God to use our lives, we have to be open to the Lord's word. Question, are you open? Are you available to the Lord? Are your ears bent towards the Lord calling you to himself? And if he calls you, are you willing to say, here I am, Lord? Here I am, I'm yours. But you know what's important, we've got to remember this, is that Abraham said, here I am, before the Lord called him to sacrifice his one and only son. We see that Moses said, here So here's the interesting part. Like, I wanted to let him get to at least that first one. So we get this general, again, added sort of background so we understand sort of the situation that Ananias is in, right? So Ananias is uh in Saul's crosshairs which is his his uh sort of hesitancy at first um to be like yeah I've heard this is a bad guy uh, but the point that he's making here is that oftentimes there's you know there's this call beforehand that you answer and then there is the sacrifice that's made after. So what he's done when he says, hey, there's always this kind of this call to be open to say, Lord, I'm available. Going through, using all these cross-references throughout the Old Testament, demonstrating where this has happened time and time again. And then that's like the fun part, right? It's like, oh, yes, God is going to use me. And then what <clears throat> he does here in the sermon is take this and sort of flip it on its head and say, but all of these people after they said, yes, I'm open, were then asked to do these things that were uncomfortable. So he's sort of bringing in this point of where he's walking us through scripture saying, hey, are you open? But then bringing in this reality after like, we're like, oh yeah, we could be open. And then bringing in this reality after of like, okay, it's going to probably cost you something then. And then he's going to use Ananias in this story to demonstrate what a believer's life should look like when called. So he's not saying you are an iron. It's just saying like, this is a, a pattern of a believer. As we see in scripture here, as he unpacks the total story, demonstrating this. And I, I just want to like, again, all my cards are probably on the table, but I think this is a great way to do this, right? This is not only are you walking people through the scriptures, not only are you giving us this context that really makes us understand and be a part of what's happening here, kind of builds that tension that is between uh, Saul and Ananias, but it's, it's, we're there and we're like, we, I want to say character, but he, obviously he's a real, he was a real person, but we connect with him in a way that we wouldn't probably otherwise do. And so what's happening here, he's really drawing you into the scripture, really laying before you what scripture is really, you know, demonstrating for us and bringing us in and forcing us to ask the questions uh, that he's asking. Here I am, Lord, before God called him to go to Pharaoh and to speak to him. We see that Samuel said, here I am, Lord, before he had to take a message of judgment to his mentor, Eli. And we see in Acts 9 that Ananias said, here I am, Lord, before he found out he's about to go to the arch enemy of the church. You see, when you say yes to the Lord, it is usually God's preparation of him calling you to do something bigger than yourself. That God will often call you to do something that is far greater than you are able to do on your own. You know that phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle? It's not in scripture. God will often give you more than you can handle. God will overwhelm you with difficulty and trial. And he does that not because he hates you, but because he loves you. And he will overwhelm you with more and more so that you cling tighter to him. So that you're dependent. When you say, God, if you don't come through, all of this falls apart. You see, it's in that moment that you're depending upon the Lord. He begins shaping your character. 
He begins conforming you, Romans 8, 29, into the image of his son. That it's in that moment that God is changing you and he's making you more like Christ. God loves to give us a lot upon us, hardship, difficulty, so that he can show himself faithful. So that he can show himself strong and he alone will get the glory. There may be times in which you walk in obedience and the difficulty that you face just seems overwhelming and you struggle. And maybe you're just like, why, Lord? Why does my marriage have to be so hard? Why do I have to have a child or a grandchild who just walks in continuous disobedience? Why are things at work just constantly difficult? Lord, why does it seem like I'm suffering and other people aren't. It's when you go through those times, through those hardships, that God is inviting you to lean upon him. He's showing you that you need him, that apart from him, everything falls apart. God loves to take moments in which we just can't to show that he can. That is what God does. And when you say yes to being a disciple of Jesus, it is not a promise of ease and comfort in this life. It's a call to hardship. It's a call to suffering. It's a call to die. Jesus said it like this in John 16. He says, I've told you these things so that in me, in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus says, One thing I want to point out, (laughs) just if you haven't caught it already, this is not what would be considered a seeker-sensitive church in regards to um, this message is, I mean, he just plainly said it. If you are a follower of Christ, it is a call into hardship and suffering. It is something that will happen. And the reason it is going to happen is because Christ is forming you into who you uh, need to be for the times that he has laid out for you. So it's, it, it is a call that is not easy, right? You're not, you don't hear him saying, uh, in fact, he said the opposite. You don't hear him going, hey, five ways to a better marriage or six ways to a better life. In fact, he said, hey, you might have a bad marriage uh, and it may be very well uh, the, the, the conflict in, in that marriage that conforms you to be more like Christ. Right? You may have disobedient children or grandchildren, and you don't want that, but God may be using that to conform you and them into the people that he wants you to be. And so like, I just want to contrast the other messages that sometimes we hear that are very much like, hey, you know, follow Jesus and all your dreams will come true, right? Like that's sort of the message that's portrayed. Maybe not said quite that way. Maybe said sometimes exactly like that. The idea, though, is that as a believer, you're being called to something. And oftentimes that is going to be hardship uh, because you're not where you need to be. And the one way for God to get you, one of the ways for God to get you, uh, God to get you in a place where you need to be is to conform you. And to conform you is going to require some pressing and some cutting away and some conforming that are not going to be comfortable to you. Uh, And at the time, they're not going to look great. Um, but they are for your good and his glory. And like, he doesn't sugarcoat it at all. Like this is going to be a difficult thing for you. Just know that. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be in you. I am for you. I am going to strengthen you. And I promise you that your suffering that you're having to endure right now is not permanent. In fact, this same Saul will one day write, these light and momentary afflictions are not worth comparing to the glory that's about to be revealed to us. You see, Ananias said yes, and he was open. Now, he was unsure of what was next. Little did he know, however, that through his obedience, God would mobilize this Saul to become one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church. You see, when you say yes to being obedient to the Lord and serving him, God will often blind you from the fruit of your labor. I was sharing this with our staff this week, is that oftentimes we don't get to see in this brief temporary life the full impact of our lives that we have to have for the sake of the kingdom. God does that to protect us from pride. That if you got to see all of the lives that you're impacting for Jesus, you'd get really prideful. 
I know my heart, I'd begin to think, man, look how awesome I am. And the Lord loves you and I enough to protect us from ourselves. He wants to protect us from pride. He wants to protect us from self-sufficiency. And so he will often bring difficulty, suffering, and trial to bring us to the point in which we say, God, I, I got nothing in me. You're my everything. And he loves to show himself faithful. So, beloved. That would have been a great place to put Paul's verse about um, uh, the thorn in the flesh. Like, I prayed for it to go away, and it wouldn't go away. And God said, that, you know, my, my grace is made perfect in your weakness, I think, or something along those lines. Uh, my memory is trash, so I don't actually know where that verse is, but I know it's there. Um, but that would have been a really good insert there. Not that, like, he's doing bad or anything. Like, I just think that that would have been a great point to say, like, wow, right? There's things that you want to go away. Like Paul wanted whatever this was to go away, but it didn't. And it's actually through that thing that, 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 that Christ was working uh, to show his glory. So, yeah, it's often like the things, again, the point that I think he made there was great in regards to, there's some, I think there's people, not just pastors, but just people in general that like don't see the outcome of their prayers or their evangelism, and they wonder if it's worth it. Um, but there are people that I know that have long since died that they never got to see the answers to their prayers, but the rest of us did. And, um, I don't know how they would have reacted to it. Um, but there are, there is a certain sense in which there are things that God just doesn't let us see and that we have to take on faith. And sometimes that is because of what he said, as far as like pride, like we, if we got to see the outcome of them, we would rely on us, um, and not on him. You have an opportunity today in which I want to invite you to say yes to the Lord Jesus. Here I am, Lord. A key to being used by God is being open to the Lord's word. The second thing we see in the text is we must be obedient to the Lord's will. Obedient to the Lord's will. The Lord tells Ananias of his sovereign plan and purpose, verse 12. Get up and go. For he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming to lay his hands on him to regain his sight. How about that? It's amazing. God had already paved the way for Ananias. But Ananias, he hesitates. Verse 13. He wants to make sure he's hearing the Lord correctly. Lord, you're, you're telling me to go to a man who wants to kill me. Lord, you're telling me to go to a man who wants to destroy my family and destroy your church. You want me to go to a man who is trying to kill, arrest, persecute your church. Just want to make sure I'm clear on this one, okay? He's seeking clarification. It's kind of like when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and says, you're going to be the mother of the Son of God. And she says, how can this be? For I've never been with a man. You see, oftentimes God calls us to do things that are outside of our comfort zones. God is going to call you to do something which you're like, I would never do this on my own. What in the world is this? God, you're calling me to do, to do this? You're calling me to do something that quite frankly, it doesn't make sense? Remember what Moses said? When the Lord called him to go speak to Pharaoh, he's like, Lord, I have a stuttering problem. Who am I? I can't go and speak to him. Remember what the Lord said? Who made your mouth? I will give you the words. I will tell you what to say. Here's Ananias. Like, Lord, are you sure you're the one, you're, I'm the one you mean to do this? You see, God loves to display his power by putting us in situations where he alone gets the glory. Put your one of the things that I just want to keep pointing out, and you've already seen it happen once, here's the second time, where he's pulling from other places in scripture to demonstrate the points that are being played out here, right? To reinforce, like, this isn't the only situation that this happens. He could have also pulled out Job, right? This, this, hey, Job, did you tell the oceans where to stop? Did you tell all of this what to do? No, you didn't. Um, so he could have used that too, but the, the point being that he's pulling from other scripture, cross-referencing him essentially without giving us like the actual quote, but which again, I would say that it's helpful if you would do that. Maybe in his notes, he has that, that they have so they can reference that. Um, but nonetheless, he's giving us other locations in scripture in which this exact thing has had happened in order to demonstrate and prove his point. 
uh, of what's going on, reinforcing that the scripture, you know, scripture interprets scripture. It gives us a clear picture of how God operates, uh, what he does, uh, contextually, how this all fits together, uh, and demonstrating that in reality, like, you know, I mean, there, there are things here, again, this whole reliance on the Lord part is a huge portion of this message. Yes, you can be open, but you have to know that this is not on you. It's, it's God that provides the ability. Um, and, and, and demonstrating that again, not through story, like here's, <laughs> I know, like, I, I know I harp on this a lot, but he's not relying on any personal stories to bring this to life or to demonstrate it. Right. He, he could easily, I'm sure, pull a story out of a personal thing that he knows that happened in his life or somebody in the congregation, tell that story that demonstrates the similar point to what's happening in this text. But rather than doing that, he is pulling from other places in Scripture to demonstrate his point. So what's the difference here? Well, here's the difference. It, it may not seem as personable, but it's definitely far better founded, right? Everything that he's giving that's an example is based in Scripture. So everything goes back to Scripture. Everything is anchored in Scripture, the truth of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, Every example that he's giving is coming from there. So it's clear, it's concise, you can find it. It's not reliant upon uh, a story or its believability, its truthfulness, the way he tells it, none of that. It all goes back to him cross-referencing things that have happened in Scripture that you can read about, that you can verify, that you can have trust in. Um, and he doesn't need to tell some random funny story to get you to connect to it. He's giving you stories that you can read and connect to on your own, and that maybe you've already read, and makes that even stronger. Yourself in Ananias' shoes, Jesus is calling him to go to one of the most dangerous men in Israel, a man who has the rage to kill you, a man who's notorious. Ananias has heard all the way in Damascus about what this guy Saul is doing in Jerusalem. This guy's notorious. He's on the most wanted list. This is a guy where people are gossiping about how dangerous he is. And here he is. He has the authority from the high priest, verse 1. He has the desire and he has the opportunity because now he is in town. It would, it would kind of be like God calling you to go into the heart of a terrorist organization. There's no weapon on your hip. There's no 911 call you can make. There's no SWAT team waiting at the door. There's no military backup. It's just you and the call of God upon your life. That's Ananias. He is eager to obey the will of the Lord. This is what God does. He calls us to do things in which they just don't seem to make sense in the worldly way. You see, heavenly obedience does not always make earthly sense. Obey Jesus anyway. We obey. We are those who say, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to make sure I'm walking in accordance to his commands. What's interesting to me, though, when this is a, a, a text of great comfort, is that God already had a plan. Go back to verse 6. Saul, Jesus told him, go into the city and you will be told what to do next. Okay, God says, I've got a plan, Saul. What's the plan? It's verse 12. It's God telling Saul that Ananias was coming to heal him. You see, Ananias was doing what God had already preordained for him to do. Okay, all right, no, stay with me, y'all. Stay with me. Ananias was doing what God had already preordained for him to do. We already see it there in the text. For this, Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Say with me. So you and I, we have work to do as followers of Jesus. All right? We got work to do. Not to be saved, but because we already are saved. All right? I know that seems like that's unnecessary to some people. Like you'll hear that. You'll be like, duh. But that is incredibly necessary to, to, to put out there for a lot of people. This understanding of works flowing through 
uh, a changed heart and mind, right? So it's not that you're doing these things. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to repeat everything he just said, but it's not that you're doing them to earn it. It's you're doing them because you've already been saved and out of this new heart, you're doing these good works. Um, and he's tying that into the reality that when, when the Lord comes to Saul and the Lord comes to Ananias, this whole situation, he's already ordained for it to happen. He's just, he's having it play out as he needs it to play out. Um, and I'm, look, I'm sure there's people who have issues with that, but like, I think this is, is this, the, as far as sermon building, the way that he's explaining this is so well done because it's demonstrating not only what is happening in Acts chapter nine, but the reality of not just what happened here, but what just plays itself out throughout the epistles, throughout the early church, all the way up to now. It's not like God's surprised by anything. It's not like he's taken off guard. He already knows he's put things in place. Um, and the, just again, cross-referencing, connecting that passage in Ephesians to both demonstrate that of what's happening in Acts, but to also connect that to how we as believers are supposed to live out um, the truth of the gospel, that we do good works that are preordained by God, um, not to earn it, but to rather um, to do the goodwill of our Lord. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You are not saved by your good works. You're saved by the good works of Jesus for you at the cross, okay? This is not for your salvation. That was secured by Christ. But as someone who's been purchased by the blood of Christ, as someone who has believed the gospel, now you and I are eager to go out and work out our salvation. But the works that we do, God has already prepared for us. He's already gone in advance for all of the good works that he is calling us to do. Beloved, this should lead us to worship, to be amazed by the God who knows everything about us, the God who knows your future, the God who knows what you're going to do before you do it, the God who knows your words before you say them. That according to Psalm 139, he knows your thoughts from afar. He knows you're lying down and you're getting up. He knows you're coming and you're going. He is a God who knows everything about you before you even say, do, or think them. This is who he is. And it leads us to worship, to be amazed by the God who knows what we don't know. And he's working in ways that we can't see through our broken eyes, our inabilities to see what he is up to behind the scenes. So what do we do? If we don't know why he's doing, or even sometimes how he's doing it, well, we're simply called to trust and obey. In 1887, there was a businessman turned preacher. His name was John Samus, and he wrote this great hymn, Trust and Obey. Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. The task that God calls you to is to trust and obey. Let him worry about how he works. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. We're not trying to figure him out like a Rubik's Cube. We are people who trust our Father, knowing that he is good and he is up to good, even in the difficulty and the questions and the struggles and the doubts that we wrestle through in this life. I also don't want you to miss here in the text what obedience will look like for this guy named Saul. Here's a guy who is verse 15. God Real quick, before we get into that, um, again, sermon building here, this, I, I just like, I can't, I, I, I cannot communicate enough how good of a sermon build this is in regards to the reality that he's intertwining, not only what's happening in the text, he's also bringing in, you know, supportive text to demonstrate the wider idea throughout scripture, but he's also connecting it in a very real way, right? There is, um, there, there is, there's a way to teach that technically communicates information and you can get it. So he could have got up and said, Hey, Ananias was very concerned, uh, about Paul, uh, but he, he believed God and he did it anyway. Right. And you should too. Right. And so could it like, like what, you know, five seconds, there you go. But instead what he does is he gets up, he gives us the context. He builds the reality of the tension 
uh, that Ananias knows that Paul is there to kill him. Um, kind of brings us into the reality and the struggle that he would have had there, but also demonstrates um, the trust that that Ananias has, right? That, he, that he's willing to go, uh, even though it's going to cost him something. There's so much that he's brought in behind here to connect us to what's happening in not only this passage, but all of Scripture, and brings us along for the ride the whole time asking us the question at the beginning that now we're having to think about and deal with through this entire sermon is, are you open, right? Where is your faith placed? And so as we're going through this, we're, we're seeking the biblical description, uh, description via Ananias and Saul alongside of like, how do, how would we process this? How are we processing this? Um, so that we're forced to, at the end of the sermon, come to a conclusion of like, what do we do then? Like, how do we apply this? What are we going to, how are we going to respond to this? So it's not um, totally dry, clearly. You can tell that he's very passionate about what he's talking about. It's very much a, a proclamation of like, like, do you see the importance of what's happening here, right? It's not over the top where he's jumping up and down and he's screaming and he's got all props and all this other stuff. It's a genuine concern and desire for his people to know the truth of the scripture. And he's unpacking it for them with the focus totally on the scriptures, not on anything else. And so you you can't sit here and and, and really not be like if you're in this room as a non-believer, you may not agree or understand everything, but you know what the point is, right? The point is on on Christ and, and what Christ is doing in this moment with Saul and Ananias. And so there's no like frill or fluff or entertainment involved. The focus, you know what it is. And if you are a believer in this room, then the questions that he's presented at the beginning, you're now forced to answer along with the unbeliever sitting next to you. But the unbeliever is obviously dealing with separate stuff. Like, who is this Jesus? Do I believe in him? Whereas the believer is saying like, am I open? Do I have faith? And there is no way to be distracted with other things that have happened. There's no props. He's not like going super excited. He's not super dull. He's not got your focus off with some random story. Like everything is centered around the text and what the Acts 9 says, as well as how he's kind of built out throughout the rest of the text all of the other stories within the scripture that can connect to this and demonstrate the truth that is uh, being taught here, even if it's not directly connected to it. Um, so like all the time, people will say, well, you, you only talk about terrible sermons. Look, here's a great one. And let me make a prediction. The great ones are hardly ever watched, right? Because they're not sensational and they're not, you know, you're not, you're not owning the heretics. Like the point here in helping believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life is honestly presenting a sermon like this, which I'm really glad the patron suggested, because what it does do is demonstrate like, this is how it's supposed to look like. This is what you're supposed to be looking for. This is how as a pastor, if you're a pastor watching, like the hope would be that it's constructed similar to this. Obviously your personality is different. And there's going to be different aspects that are applied, but the idea is here, like, this is it. This is it. It's not, it's right. It's not watchable if it's not owning the heretics, right? The point being, though, is like, this is the faithful proclamation of the word. This is what we want to see. This is what the desire of the pastor should be is to edify and uplift his congregation and call them to something better in Jesus. Um, okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. Let's, let's keep going. God's chosen instruments. And he's going to take the gospel to Jews, Gentiles, kings, governors, and one day before Caesar himself. And part of him being used by God, it's going to entail great suffering for the sake of Christ. All right, stare at verses 15 and 16. That's a good summary of the life and ministry of the apostle Paul, is it not? Jesus is making two things clear to Ananias. God is going to use Saul, and Saul is going to suffer. There's no whiff of prosperity gospel in verse 16. Jesus is shooting it straight with Ananias. This guy, Saul, he's going to suffer for my name. 
He's going to face hardship and difficulty and strife that is going to be downright overwhelming. In church, oftentimes, the people whom God uses the most are those who suffer the most. Don't miss that. The people whom God uses the most are those who suffer the most. It's because those who have been humbled by affliction, they radiate the presence and the power of Jesus upon their life. You see, some Christ followers are like, God, I want you to use my life, but they don't want the suffering. They avoid it at all costs. And yet God has ordained for suffering for the believer to be not only a tool of sanctification, but God's way of saying, now I'm going to show my power through your weakness. A couple of years ago, I was going through a really hard trial. And I was really struggling uh, with... So here's the personal story that I said he hadn't told yet. So let's see how this goes just a situation I was facing and I was talking with a, a church member here at Westwood about it and he connected me with another pastor in Texas who had just walked through a very similar trial that I was walking through and I called this guy and we had a great conversation and he made this comment to me he said Kenneth there is anointing in the crushing and I said hey man I need you to unpack that some more come on what you got he said the word Gethsemane it means a place of crushing. And he said, Garden of Gethsemane was a place where olives would be put in a place where they would be crushed. And out would come these drops of oil where they would make olive oil. And right now, you're like an olive that is being crushed. But it's producing an oil for anointing. And you and I, we know this is true in light of Scripture, where Jesus, the anointed king, goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would be crushed under the weight of the cross that was before him. And he would not have drops of oil come out, but drops of blood he would sweat out as he was crushed under the weight of suffering that was coming his way. And for some of you in this room, you're going through suffering. You're facing hardship and pain, and you're just like, oh, God, would you please take this away? And he loves you. So one thing I want to demonstrate here, right? So let's have it while we're in the moment. I've said before, and I'll say it again, stories aren't always bad. The key to stories is if they are going to bring out the text and make the text more uh, applicable or connect to the people you're talking to. So what appears to have happened here, right? So he comes out, tells the story about how he was going through a different situ difficult situation. Another pastor told him that oftentimes it's in the crushing that you actually have some sort of sanctification that occurs. He then goes into that at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, even seeing the cross coming, was in a very hard place and was it was crushed under the weight of that and relies on the Father, obviously, not my will, but your will be done. And then he connects that to those that he's speaking to in his congregation, saying, maybe you're going through this right now, too. Now, that's important because what he's saying is like you are experiencing similar things to what has happened in to, to people in scripture. So whether it be Paul or Ananias or, or Christ himself, you are experiencing that as well. Now, I think what he does here and the reason he connects his suffering without going into detail, I think that was a very helpful thing. Leave that out. Who cares about that? But you have been through it, right? So there is this connection to like, I, I know suffering too. I know you know suffering, but we both know that Jesus knows suffering. So he's connecting to his congregation by telling them, like, I've been in difficult situations, but not getting into some big, long story about what that was, but just saying, I understand what you're going through. You're going through suffering as well, but we both can look to Jesus and his example in suffering to get through it. So all of this brings out, first of all, it doesn't really connect directly to Acts 9, though he is sort of lining all these pieces up. But it does connect directly to Jesus and his suffering in the garden 
um, and his reliance on, on God, the Father. So this here isn't a story. Again, what often happens is that you are the hero of your own story most of the time when you tell it, right, as a pastor. Uh, here, he, not only is he not the hero, he's the one that can't control the situation. He's the one being crushed. And it's in a relation to being able to connect to his congregation and saying, like, I get it, guys. Like, I, I've been there as well. But then using Jesus as the unifier in both his suffering and where he found hope and where they can as well. You so much and says no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And it is through the crushing that you are experiencing the presence of God. And his power is in you and it's through you. As you go through the crushing, there is anointing. You see, we know that ultimately Jesus, the anointed king of Israel, he was crushed for you. That the weight of your sin was placed squarely upon his shoulders at the cross. That he endured great suffering for you. He was crushed for your iniquity. You see, the death of Jesus was ugly, awful, and terrible because your sin and my sin is ugly and awful and terrible and deserves death. And so Jesus says, instead of you taking the wrath for your sin, I'm going to take it for you. I love you so much. I don't want you to have to go through that. So I'm going to take it for you. And when he prays, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because it's in that moment the full wrath of God is placed upon Jesus. So now, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He came to set you free, that through his death, through his substitutionary atonement, he took your place, died in your place. His blood was shed for your forgiveness. He was crushed so that in him you can be free, experience salvation, receive adoption as sons, and you're called his both now and forever. This is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that we suffer for him because he first suffered for us. And so we do it gladly because he gladly took it for us. And so we're going to walk the Calvary road. We're going to follow Jesus up that mountain because we are now hidden in him. And my life is his both now and forever. There's so many references here to scripture. Like he, I, the thing is that, um, Again, we're not necessarily referencing, but there's so much it would be near impossible to reference all of them as far as where he's directing them. But he's saying things that if you've been in church, like they're ringing true to you, you, you recognize the phrases. Um, and just bringing in the fact, again, I mean, we, we, do, we do sermon reviews every single week. And one of the things every single week that we look for is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ preached? And almost always that's a no, right? Even in, in really decent sermons, oftentimes there's just parts there. Um, but here we have it. I mean, right. I mean, I don't, where we got, we got, um, about 10 minutes left. I don't know if there's music at the end. I, I'm not sure. I didn't get this far when I was watching it the first time, but, um, so I'm not sure how close we are to the end here, but the point being is that, um, I mean, we're, we'll discuss this at the end, but the reality that we have a gospel presentation in the middle of this, uh, built within as a declaration to unbelievers, of the love of Christ for them, but also as a reminder for believers of the reality of that. And he was, I, I, I'm sure he, it seems to be that he was careful to say that this is a part of being a believer, right? This isn't the only thing, right? Christ's death and resurrection is not the only thing that's going to be a part of your life as a believer, but it is, it is justification. But then he's mentioned a number of times in this sermon, this idea of sanctification through one's life, right? And this working out of your salvation as being part of that and uh, that being that sanctification. And so what we have here is so much orthodox teaching happening at once that it could be easily be missed. But he, he's, again, all of this things that he's saying is all scriptural. 
He's not pointing them out every single time he says it, but every bit of this is based in scripture, um, which is a rare thing. It is so rare. Let's keep going. What did Jesus mean in verse 16? What did he mean that Saul would suffer? Well, Paul tells us just a little bit of his resume of suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. He says this, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. If you want God to use your life, you have to obey his will for your life. And that includes difficulty and suffering. It means you're ha- gonna have to endure hardship, persecution, people mocking you, belittling you, despising you for your claims of being scripture and standing firm in Jesus. You're gonna face physical hardship. You're gonna have pain. But Jesus says, I'm gonna be with you every step of the way. I will be in you, I will be for you, and this suffering that you are experiencing, it's not permanent. In fact, it's light and it's momentary in light of the glory that's about to be revealed to us. Oh, hope in God, hope in him, trust in him with all of your heart. You can bank your soul and your life upon the King of Kings who made you, knows you, and loves you. The one who is fully aware of all of your sin, but gladly took it upon his son. The one who went into the grave so that you don't have to remain there. For on the third day, Jesus got up out that grave. And so too will you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your hope. Trust in him. Hope in him, for he is your savior. He knows you by name, and you belong to him both now and forever. Westwood, let's suffer well, that with joy, James 1, 2, we count it all joy as you face trials of many kinds. We have to be willing to obey the will of the Lord. See it here in the text. Be open to the Lord's word obedient to the Lord's will. Thirdly, be overjoyed by the Lord's work. Ananias places his hands on Saul. Saul is healed of physical blindness. He receives the Holy Spirit by faith in Christ. Verse 17, he gets baptized. Oh my goodness. And they have some dinner. Okay. What a day. Day of rejoicing, right? This is amazing. The destroyer is now a disciple. I love verse 17, y'all. Look at this. Look what Ananias says. His his first words to Saul, verse 17, brother Saul. Yes, brother. You're my brother. You're family. You're no longer the destroyer. You're a disciple. You're with me. We're family. You see, the gospel takes us from God's foe to God's family. He's no longer an enemy. He's a brother. Saul is a brother in Christ. And Ananias is there, open to the Lord's call, obedient to the Lord's will, and now overjoyed by the Lord's work. God has done the impossible. God has used Ananias to lead someone to Jesus that no one thought would ever become a believer. One of the things, again... And I've already stated this. I'll, I'll state it again just for, you know, giggles. Um, do you see what he's doing? Like, 
It is one thing to read the text. It is another thing to demonstrate what the text is saying. Uh, and this idea of this change of language, this brother Saul, this, this understanding of what it is communicating within the words and actions between these two people that are coming, it's coming to life off of the pages of scripture, because this is a real event that really happened to real people that had real effects on everything. You and I now, like the whole reason we're even doing, like we're watching this sermon and I'm doing this review is because of the gospel spreading throughout the world. And the, what he's done, what this pastor's done, all the, I, I forget his name. I've seen it a few times, but I forget it. What, what, what's happened is as he's walked us through the passage in Acts 9, he's brought this to life in a way that typically, when you're reading it, does not happen. And he's done so by focusing on Scripture, either here in the text or elsewhere in Scripture, to demonstrate his point. I, I just cannot emphasize enough how well this is done, how crucial this is, because the focus has not left the text. The one time it did, when he told a story about his suffering, he connected it to the people and he connected them to Jesus. The one time we did tell a story, it all came back to Jesus anyway and connected to the main point he was making in the, his second point of the sermon, which was reliance on Christ. And so all of this Right, all the time you hear people say, "Well, you, you know, you got to keep people's attention. You got to make it relatable. You got to make it relevant." What you got to do is just be a better communicator, not an entertainer. Right? I, we don't need pastors that are entertainers. What we need is pastors that are good communicators, and that love the Word of God, and that is demonstrated by the way that they communicate it. Right. I mean, in this, he has not only preached, he's not just, you know, ex just pleaded with the people to understand what the text is saying, but he's also taught them what the text is saying and led them through it. We don't need entertainers. We need, we need pastors. And the good news is you and I can be like an Ananias and to someone else. We can be ambassadors for Christ where we take someone by the hand and we introduce them to Jesus. In fact, this is the challenge I'm bringing before our church today. It's your impact point, and it's this. Identify one person this week to share the gospel with. Identify that one person whom you can share the gospel with. Now, ultimately, the Lord is the one who saves, not you. So the pressure is off there. And the person may reject you, but ultimately it's not you they're rejecting, it's Christ in you, okay? So the pressure is off there. And if they're just not even interested, you planted a seed. You see, it's always a blessing when you share the gospel. God is the one who saves. God is the one who changes the heart. And aren't you grateful that someone shared the gospel with you? As I survey the landscape of this room, I'm thinking upon the thousands upon thousands of people who have been instrumental in each one of us coming to faith in Christ. Someone was praying for you. Someone was sharing the gospel with you. Someone was planting seeds in your heart. So whether you trusted in Christ at a young age or at an old age, there was a point in which your heart was transformed by the Lord, not by people. But God used the people in your life to lead them to faith in Christ. So now, you and I get to go do the same. We get to go and take this incredible gospel about Jesus, whom the world hates, whom the world wants nothing to do with. The world scoffs at him, and so let them. For us, we share Jesus we are an aroma of Christ to a dying world pointing to him. And so now we get to do what others have done for us. We share the gospel and we point people to Jesus. Has your life been changed by the gospel? If your life has not been changed by Jesus, I want to invite you today to humble yourself and give your life to Christ to call upon his name and he will rescue you and save you. 
If you're in this room and your life has been changed by Jesus, we have a story to tell. We get to be like an Ananias or like a Ralph Derryberry. And we get to point people to Jesus. Let's pray. What in the world, bro? Yes! Like, I don't think I have a sound effect that's a really cool horn that's like, dur, 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 or some nonsense. I don't, I don't have any of that. It's just like, what in the world? That's amazing. Like, all the time, almost every single week, these sermon reviews are just, like, incredibly disappointing. Uh, uh, very rarely do we come across a sermon that has been suggested that's good, Right? So let, let's let's go over it. Like I th you already know, <laughs> you already know. It's like you already you already know the end of the the story here. But let's do it anyway, right? One, did he read the text? Yes, he did. Two, did he use culture and context to bring out the application in the text? Yes, he did. Did he preach the gospel of Christ? Uh, yes, he did. A hundred percent. Look, there you go. If you if you. If you are a pastor or you're learning to preach and you want to do, like you want to get better at it, you have a desire to, 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 to do well, that's a great example. That's a great example. And I don't even know the guy's name. It, it's Westwood Church. I don't, I don't even know his name. It's not even important. The point is that that's a great example of what to do. You have, I, I'm so encouraged when I watch uh, non-well-known pastors um, of, of churches that aren't that big, um, that are, are so faithful in proclaiming the gospel message that they, they give me such hope after doing so many of these sermon reviews that are just absolute trash. Um, and all you see is like big, huge name pastors that are either don't present it well, or just are just write out heretics about things. Um, but then you go, man, like, look at these, these pastors of small churches or even medium-sized churches that are just doing such a good job. Even there's some pastors of, of very big churches that are doing well uh, and they're just getting a bad rap because they have a big church. The point is like, look at the content. Do they do these three things, right? Do they open the word? Do they read it? Do they bring out context and culture and applicability, right? Do they preach the gospel? <sighs> That's a good, That's a good sermon. That's like a, a fist bump kind of like, yes, thank goodness. I think you know where I, <laughs> I think you know where I fall on this. Anyway, guys, let me know what you think in the comments below. If you found this helpful, if you liked it, make sure you got to the end of this. You are a, you're, you're a champion here, man. You got through the whole hour and seven minutes of it. Hit that like button. I'll talk to you next week.